your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Contactless delivery. There are two words that have never been put together in the English language up to a couple of weeks ago. But this is the situation that we are dealing with. Uh, we are scared of each other. We're scared of the groceries we bring into the house. Uh, scared of going out for a walk. Uh, scared of doing everything. It's a totally unprecedented uh, situation. It's, uh, it's like out of the movies. And uh, there actually was such a movie. Many of you, of course, have seen it, Contagion, back in um, 2012. And uh, I was listening actually yesterday to the um, expert who was the consultant on that film as well as to the maker of the film. And uh, they object to the fact that people are watching this movie now and saying that it's uncanny how similar it is to what is going on today. Well, they're saying that it really shouldn't have been uncanny at all because they did scrupulous research and uh, the movie was based on facts available at that time. And uh, many experts, CDC and elsewhere, had said that there would be such a pandemic sometime in the future and that preparations were in order. And uh, I don't think anyone really took it as seriously as they should have. But of course, hindsight is, uh, is always easy. The interesting movie to watch, uh, somewhat disturbing now, because of course it is all too real. But uh, they said, you know, it really wasn't uncanny because it represented a situation that was very realistic and that could happen. And now of course we see that it uh, did happen. Anyway, I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society with a mandate of separating sense from nonsense, keeping people in tune with what is happening in the world of science, and that we deal with facts, we deal with myths, and our only allegiance is to the scientific method. We do not accept any kind of funding from any vested interest. Makes no difference to me or my colleagues whether or not any substance, be it a medicine, be it a food additive, be it a cosmetic drug, whether it is uh, legal, not legal, whether something is banned, the only thing that matters is that whatever decision is arrived at is not arrived at based on emotion, but is arrived at based on proper scientific methodology. That's our goal. Now, of course, scientific methodology does not always give us answers. And we have a classic case now with the situation that we are dealing with. There are all kinds of questions to ask, but answers are fleeting. We are getting more and more as the situation evolves and we are accumulating more and more information and uh, things change. And the recommendations that, that were being made a week ago are probably not the ones that are going to be made a week from now or perhaps even by tomorrow or perhaps even by tonight. Everything seems to be changing. Okay, we will, of course, get around to your questions. Our number is 514-790-0800. Uh, as you know, my background is chemistry, so that's the kind of questions that we answer. Uh, Specific medical questions obviously should be addressed to your physician. You can also text us at 514-800, and we will attempt to answer many questions as possible. Uh, now, I, I 
fully understand that uh, many of the questions that will come up are questions that have been asked before in various different formats. Uh, but uh, the fact is that we always have new listeners who may not have heard those questions. So sometimes uh, repetitive uh, is good because the more you, you bang away at something, the more people understand it. And of course, what we're banging away mostly now is the importance for physical distancing. That is really the weapon that we have. Uh, that's the only way that we can reduce the chance of uh, disinfection spreading further and further as we wait for some drug to emerge, which may be a possibility, or a vaccine to emerge. And uh, that will happen. The, the vaccine will eventually be found because the technology in order to do this is, is well known. It's not a question of, of having to find a way to, to uh, develop vaccines. Very well known that vaccines can be developed. And ever since the uh, genetic makeup of the virus, this coronavirus was decoded, uh, vaccine producers in numerous research laboratories around the world are on the beat because that really was the key. And uh, Chinese researchers who managed to uh, totally uh, analyze the, uh, the genetic uh, code, uh, the blueprint of the virus, uh, now have put that out there so that uh, companies, academic institutions know what it is. Now, why is that important? You've probably seen pictures of the virus, and it kind of looks like a ball with these spikes coming out of it. Those spikes are important because they are basically a mixture of proteins and fats, but this is what the virus uses to latch onto cells or invading the cell. And if we know what those specific proteins are, then it is possible to develop vaccines based on those proteins because the whole idea of a vaccine is to inject into the system that will allow the system to recognize it as a foreign invader, develop antibodies towards it. But of course, whatever you're injecting cannot be harmful. So what researchers are looking for is a piece of that virus, sort of, of protein that can be injected to which antibodies can uh, be developed. So since the genetic code of the virus has been unraveled, and what of course do is they code for the proteins, eventually uh, they will find that proteins are important in terms of, of triggering antibody production and uh, manufacturing will be underway. Of course, even when a potential vaccine is discovered, it is not going to be immediately available because it will have to be mass produced and there will be, of course, ethical questions about who should first get it. But the testing process is going to have to be very carefully done. Um, it is always possible with a novel vaccine that some unforeseen circumstance happens. And you have to be absolutely sure that you're not going to trigger some, some massive epidemic of something in the population uh, with an unforeseen factor. So the testing will have to be very carefully done. Now, you've probably heard uh, notions that it may be the case that a prototype vaccine will be developed in a couple of months. That is possible. That, of course, does not mean that it will be available as, as a therapeutic modality uh, soon as it's developed. 
It's going to take months and months of testing to make sure that it is safe and that it is effective. What is the guess? Uh, my guess would be 12 to 18 months, would be, which would be record-setting because often vaccines take years and years to, to develop. But of course, now there's a, a collaborative effort. The pharmaceutical companies and independent researchers are, are all sharing data. So it is possible that this will happen more quickly than it's ever happened before. But uh, we're not looking at a, a vaccine that can be distributed to the public in, um, in the next uh, a few months. All right, we're going to try to answer as many of your questions as uh, possible. I'll try to search uh, for questions uh, that have been texted in, which uh, are somewhat novel. We'll try to uh, emphasize those. Okay, you are listening to The Dr. Joe Show, and we'll check traffic, of which I suspect there is not very much, and we'll be right back and try to answer your questions. Life's Everyday Mystery Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I asked a question this morning on the trivia show. I think it's a pretty straightforward question. was, what is the relationship between yogurt containers and the N95 uh, masks? Well, it's the material of which uh, both are constructed. It is polypropylene. Polypropylene is a plastic. Uh, if you turn over your yogurt container, you will probably see the uh, triangle and the letters PP below the triangle. That stands for polypropylene. Very commonly used plastic, a very, very interesting uh, plastic. Uh, numerous applications. Uh, you can make everything from food containers to rope uh, out of it. And it can also be used as a filter medium. And that is the case with the N95 masks. You may have wondered how these things work and how do you make it. Polypropylene uh, is melted and the hot melt is squeezed through tiny little nozzles called spinnerets. <clears throat> and it is squeezed onto a surface where these tiny threads deposit in a pattern that looks like a, a spider's web. So they're all interlaced. And as it cools down, it forms this network. And there are tiny holes in that network. And those are the holes that allow air and gases to pass through, but they do not allow particles to pass through. <clears throat> now, of course, depending on exactly how this is manufactured, those microscopic holes are bigger or, or smaller. And in the N95 mask, they are very small, and they will filter out everything that is 0.3 microns or, or greater. So when you're talking about the N95 mask, the 95 refers to the fact that it filters out 95% of all particles that are bigger than um, 0.3 microns. It will also filter out, in some studies, some of the smaller ones, but, but the, uh, it, the testimonials, uh, or at least the, the uh, <clears throat> actual definition is 0.3 microns that it will uh, filter out. <clears throat> The N refers to the fact that these masks are not used to, are not to be used for any kind of oily material. So uh, it's not to be used for painters who work with oil paints, etc., because those will degrade the uh, uh, the mask. So polypropylene is a very important material. It is also the material that is used in the surgical masks. 
It's just that there it's a different construction. The, the holes are not as small because, of course, you need to breathe better through it. The trouble with the N95 mask is that while they are very effective, it's very difficult to keep them on for a long time because it's hard to breathe uh, through them. And breathability is, is very important. You may have seen uh, recently, of course, a great deal of talk about making masks at home, and people are, are doing this. question is, what is the best material? Obviously, nothing that you make at home is going to be as good as the commercially produced masks. But a study that was done by Cambridge University in England looked at several different kinds of materials, and they came to the conclusion that if you're going to make a homemade mask, a cotton T-shirt material or cotton material that is used in pillowcases is a good choice because you're not only looking at how you can uh, filter out low droplets, you also have to take into account the breathability of the fabric because if you're going to wear this for any significant time, you have to be able to breathe through it. So those are the ones that, that are being recommended for now. But as I said, you know, that may change within the next hour as more studies come out because there are a lot of people around the globe now studying the effectiveness of various kinds of masks on what materials should be used and how to disinfect masks that have once been worn. Uh, and we'll have an answer to, to these questions. It seems now that the N95 masks can be autoclaved in hospitals so they can be reused. There's also the possibility of using ultraviolet light in order to uh, uh, sanitize the, the masks. So we're going to have a lot more information coming out about that in, uh, in the next uh, week or, or two. All right, let's, uh, let's get to the lines. Uh, Judy. Hi, Judy. Hi, Dr. Joe. Uh, my question is, bringing home groceries, but specifically those that are packaged in plastic, like hot dogs, the chicken in trays, okay. uh, chips, Right. How do you deal with it? Okay. This is a question that I, I think I probably asked in the last week more than any other because, of course, everyone is dealing with this, this problem with, with groceries. There are several things to point out here. <clears throat> First, very important, this is a respiratory virus. The way that it infects people is by traveling through your nose, through your mouth, into the back of the throat where it can engage the mucus layer, or through the eyes. It does not get into the bloodstream. So handling you know, groceries, even if you have cuts on your hands, that's not an issue. The issue is what you do with your hands after you've handled the groceries. If you don't wash them and you touch your face and there happen to have been some viral contamination on the groceries, that's how you can get infected. But if you wash your hands well after handling the groceries, you have tremendously reduced the risk of any kind of, of contamination. Now, what is the chance that there is a viral contaminant on your groceries? <clears throat> it is not a very big chance, but it can happen. How can it happen? If someone who was doing the packing, who was doing the delivering, happened to cough or sneeze, and they are infected, uh, it is possible to have viral contamination on there. And if you touch it and then you touch your face, that would be a means of getting it into your system. This is why some people are uh, doing everything that they can to minimize all risk. So they are wiping down the, uh, the groceries. How do you wipe them down? 
well, if you happen to have any of the, you know, the, the um, uh, Clorox uh, cleaning uh, uh, tissues, uh, that that works. You can take a paper towel and put a few drops of hand sanitizer on it and, and use that. Or, in fact, you can just use a, a, a cloth on which you have put a little bit of, of, of soap. It's more, to I think, to satisfy uh, your soul that you're doing everything that, that is possible uh, because I don't think that this is such you know, a big chance. Of, it's not a big risk uh, that you're taking as long as you're washing your hands well after handling the groceries because in order to have contamination, so many things have to go wrong. Someone will have to have uh, been infected they will have to have transferred their virus, you know, from their mouth or or or, or nose onto the package material. Uh, the package material would have had to uh, uh, have been somehow uh, stored uh, for for you know uh, a very short time because the virus eventually uh, does get. Uh, uh, well, I don't like to use the word killed because it's never never alive. Well, how long but, can it stay on the plastic? Well, it depends on, on what kind of plastic it is, but it can probably stay on there one to two days. But again, just because it is there doesn't mean that it is infective. That's another important thing to understand. With viruses, just like with everything else, the dose is important. So it's not only the presence, but it's the presence in significant amounts. And it's not likely to be there in significant amounts. But if you really want to be safe, uh, take a cloth, put water on it, put a little bit of soap on it, wipe the surface of the of the plastic with it, and that will take care of it. But, but I think that sounds safer to me than uh, uh, chemical disinfectants. Uh, the Clorox wipes are, are fine uh, because you're not going to be eating the packaging anyway. <laughs> uh, but uh, to me, uh, the critical thing is after you've handled it, wash your hands. And if you wash your hands, the chance of transferring anything to your face is, is, is very small. So, you know, with this uh, cursed virus, we cannot say impossible about anything, but uh, I don't think that that is a, a, a big uh, risk. The groceries are not a big risk factor in how this is being transferred. Okay, we've got to take a break here. We'll be back, answer hopefully a lot more of your questions, uh, see what else there is on the news. Maybe we're going to learn more about the virus. Here we go. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Does all this disinfecting uh, and overcleaning cause more harm than good? And, of course, what this is referring to is the so-called hygiene hypothesis that we've talked about before on this show. The idea that the reason that we're seeing more allergies these days is because... Uh, we're too antiseptic, and kids are, are growing up in an environment in which they have not been exposed to microbes, and their immune system has not learned to deal with them. And therefore, when uh, they come up against something like you know, peanuts, uh, they develop a reaction to it that uh, otherwise you know, would be an innocuous material. Interesting question. There may be something to that. Uh, I mean, the hygiene hypothesis is not one that is accepted by everyone. But I guess we are going to learn some more about this because never before has there been such extensive cleaning. And we'll see whether or not it has any effect on the children who are growing up. 
Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, it's not knowable, of course, at this this stage. It's going to take time to figure things like that out. But certainly, it, uh, it's an interesting point. Okay, let's go to the lines and go to John. Hi, John. Hi. Hi. Uh, earlier today, doctor, thanks for taking my call, uh, you mentioned that sunshine could affect this virus. Mm-hmm. And my second question is, before you were cut off for my previous caller, you were just going to explain how to either disinfect or clean a mask. Yes. And the caller cut you off. Well, uh, there's a lot of research on exactly what to do uh, with that, and there's no conclusive answer yet. Now, of course, the real research is targeted at medical facilities because they're the ones who would have to be reusing the N95 masks. Mm -hmm. And uh, there have been a couple of studies that came out this past week showing that autoclaving works and also that uh, using ultraviolet light uh, can work. Now, this is also uh, the connection to the question that you're asking, because ultraviolet light can also attack uh, this virus. The problem is that the main component of ultraviolet light that that, uh, targets the virus for destruction is UVC, ultraviolet C, which is very, very short wavelength ultraviolet light. Now, it comes from the sun, but most of the UVC is filtered out by the Earth's ozone layer. On the other hand, the disinfecting ultraviolet lamps are designed especially to emit UVC. So when those are used, they are very potent disinfectants. And in fact, uh, ultraviolet C is, is commonly used in water disinfecting systems and air disinfecting systems. But even some of the UVC that does sneak through the uh, ozone layer uh, would have an effect on uh, on the virus. So, so that uh, uh, any... Uh, substance that has the virus on it, which is out in the open air in the in the sunshine, uh, the virus will not last as long as indoors. Good. Okay. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. Uh, let's go to Scott. Hi, Scott. Hi, I'm Mr. Schwartz. How are you? As well as anyone else, I guess. Yeah. Listen, I have two questions. Okay. Um, is it possible that this virus is man-made? Well, that theory, of course, has been proposed uh, by many conspiracy theorists, and it has been extensively investigated by researchers who really know what they're doing and who have looked at the genome of the virus and have concluded that it is not possible that it's a manufactured virus. Okay, my second question is that viruses, correct me if I'm wrong, um, bacteria bacteria can be treated and viruses can't. Well, that's not exactly true. Uh, bacteria can be treated uh, with antibiotics, certainly, and they also uh, are more susceptible to disinfecting agent than, than viruses. Vir- so, viral infections are much harder to treat, but there are some antiviral drugs that do work. Uh, these are the drugs that are used in the treatment of HIV infections, for example. So okay. it's, it's not right to say that, that there are no antiviral treatments. They're just much harder to come by than antibiotics. Uh, Okay, so things like AIDS itself right there, that's been on the market for the longest, like we've had AIDS probably going back to 1980s. Yeah, oh yeah, AIDS has been around for you know over 30 years. And the yeah, num- and we, number and of antiviral... And we still haven't cracked it either. No, we, we haven't just... cracked it. No, we, they, I mean, we have cracked it to the extent that there are people now with AIDS who are living uh, full lives because the antiviral drugs do work well. But nobody has so far been able to develop uh, a vaccine against that virus. That that is true. 
Yeah, so this is what really makes this hard, too, because this thing could go off for, for it does. It does. I mean, there's no guarantee that a virus will be uh, developed. But when you listen to the, the researchers who are working on vaccines, uh, they concur that this is not as complex as HIV and that they will be able to vaccine. That's good. Well, I want to thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Have a good day. Okay, uh, let's go to uh, Monica. Yes, good afternoon, Dr. Joe. I want to say, first of all, I really enjoy your show. It is very informative, and I appreciate you helping us. Thank you. Now, the question is, I have a little Shih Tzu. She's 17 years old, but I don't take her out now because I'm not not, um, confident enough when she goes and walks, whether there's a bacteria on the grass or on the earth or the walk. Is there a problem? It is. That is so unlikely that I would put that virtually in the, the chance of impossible. Oh, that's I mean, un, uh, unless, you know, someone just walked by and spit on that grass mm-hmm. and had been infected, mm-hmm. and your 17-year-old Shih Tzu steps in it, get up and cuddle it and touch <laughs> your face, mm-hmm. yes, that would be a way outside possibility. I, I wouldn't, this is not something that I would worry about. Uh, uh, not uh, not that, sh- uh, not for regarding for myself, but for her to be infected? No. No, 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 no. Okay, Dr. Joe, the second question is, I live in an apartment building where they have a few washer and dryers. Right. Uh, w- would that be a problem? Because I am hesitant to do my laundry. Uh, no, the laundry would not be a problem. The problem would be is if you meet someone in the laundry room and start chatting with them and, no, no. and don't uh, you know don't have uh, distancing, okay. but not the laundry. And detergent uh, destroys the virus. And even with the dryer, also the dryer as well. The the heat in the dryer is, is certainly hot enough to destroy the virus. This virus inactivates at around fifty fifty five degrees. Mm-hmm. So guess who's going to do their laundry? The seventeen year old Shih Tzu. <laughs> likely, most likely, Mama's tired. <laughs> Doctor Joe, I I can't thank you enough. Okay, well, good luck with the laundry and uh, with the longevity of your dog. That's a that's an interesting age to live to, right? In humans, that I bet would be over a hundred human terms. Okay, uh, let's go to Andy. Andy. Joe, I've been listening to your advice and to Dr. Debbie's advice. We're staying at home. I'm working from home. My husband is working from home, and we're homeschooling our daughter. We have set up a space in the basement for us all to work. It's, it's somewhat dark. Uh, we get out to walk about once every other day. So my concern really, as opposed to all the other callers, uh, you know, I think we're, we're pretty safe, but my concern is the lack of vitamin D. Do we have to taking supplements or is there some sort of special action we should be taking now that we are really confined? Well, you know, a lot of foods are fortified with vitamin D. Milk is fortified with vitamin D. But there's absolutely no problem in taking a vitamin D supplement. 500 to 1,000 international units is not going to cause any kind of harm. And that is all that you need in order to prevent any vitamin D deficiency diseases. Now, there's a lot of talk also about vitamin D being possibly uh, of help in, in um, uh, helping the immune system deal with the virus. There's no concrete evidence for that. But uh, taking 500 to 1,000 IU of vitamin D, no problem at all. So why not do it? And for 
per child as well, the same amount? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 500 is no problem with per child. Okay. okay. Thank you so much. All right. And uh, we'll take uh, some more of your questions, but we've got to take a break here. Uh, we're going to check for the non-existent traffic. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I think we have an important question here from Ron. Ron. Yeah. Hi there, uh, Dr. Joe. I actually have two questions for you. My first question is, have you had any questions other than about this coronavirus thing? Uh, in the last week, I have had one question other than about this coronavirus thing. <laughs> okay. Just testing that. The thing I wanted to ask like this, I, 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 about clinical uh, testing, why do clinical tests take as long as they do? And I know they vary from, from, from different... Okay. Uh, it's a, different this things. is a very good point because clinical trials are, are at the heart of, of science uh, going forward. A in a clinical trial you um, expose two groups of people to whatever you are testing, where one group is getting the drug that you're testing or the vaccine, and the other group is getting a placebo. In the best kind of clinical trials, after you've done a certain period of testing like that, you do a crossover where people before who were getting the placebo are now getting the active drug, etc. It is only like that that you can rule out the placebo effect and make sure that something is actually effective. Now, in the case of, of, of the vaccine, uh, it is not as important to have a placebo group because, of course, uh, uh, you're, you're not going to, to have any effect uh, on the virus by thinking that it's not going to have an effect on you. Uh, but it's very important to have what is called a randomized clinical trial where a random group of people who are suffering from a condition uh, are, are investigated and given different doses. That's the only way that we learn. Anecdotal evidence doesn't amount to, to much in science. You have people now saying that uh, um, their patients who took uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine did not require intubation as much. So far, this is all anecdote. We need a proper trial to determine. You need people who, who have been given the drug and people who have not been given the drug and seeing what the intubation ratio is between those. And we need significant numbers of, of people. And those those trials now are, are indeed uh, underway. But it's difficult to do. It's difficult to do logistically and uh, it's difficult to, to monitor. Um, and uh, you don't get results quickly because very often with uh, medications, it takes a while to determine whether or not there is an effect. You know, can you define what a while is? What, like, can you give us a little, shed a little light on how long it takes to see the effect of something uh, given to a, a patient with something? You know? Okay. Well, I I can tell you the, the kind of the the uh, the way it works with a new drug. If you have a new drug that um, you think is going to work for some condition, <clears throat> the first thing is that. Uh, the drug is tested in what is called a phase one trial. And in that situation, the only thing that is tested for is safety. So you have a group of vol volunteer subjects who are given the drug. And uh, if it turns out that there's no complication in terms of side effects, then you go to phase two. 
in phase two, you enlist a group of, of, of subjects, generally a very small number, uh, usually under uh, 100, who suffer from the condition that the drug is designed to treat. And you also enlist a group of subjects that are going to be used as a control group. So you administer the drug, and remember that these are now subjects who suffer from whatever disease that, that, that they have. But in order to see whether or not there's any efficacy, it's going to take at least a few months because diseases you know, go on cycles and sometimes you feel better and sometimes you feel worse. So in order to know whether or not there's a real impact, it is at least months. But that is only with you know, a very small number of, of, uh, of subjects. If it works, if you see that there is efficacy, then you go to the phase three trials, which normally enlist two to 3,000 people. And those can take from a few months to a couple of years, depending on what the uh, the drug is and what the disease is. So generally, it's a very long time uh, until you get the the answer. Uh, at least three years before you have any kind of answer from beginning to end uh, when you're testing a, a drug. Now, I think in the case of the vaccine that that we're is, talking is about here, is there any reason why they have to do animal testing or? <laughs> Well, you have to do animal testing first to make sure that when you're going to expose human subjects to a, a novel entity, that at least you have some idea about whether or not it is safe. Uh, so uh, the animal testing is uh, at first only for safety because you, you can't just you know, take a group of, of, of subjects and, and uh, use something about which you have no idea. So you've got to have some idea, at least from uh, drugs, uh, from uh, animal studies. Now, with the vaccine, I think uh, this process is going to be speeded up now. And uh, uh, I think uh, they're going to take a few chances because the impact of this uh, you know, pandemic is so intense. Okay? Okay, thanks very much. Uh, let's go to Bonnie. Bonnie. Hello, Dr. Joe. Thank you for everything you do. I also have two questions. The first one is, um, yesterday I heard a doctor being interviewed, both in the Eastern Townships, both he and his wife uh, were tested positive for COVID-19. Um, he's still not able to go back to work, and this is 30 days since he was diagnosed, Um because, well, I guess anyone in the medical field is being tested to see if they're free and can go back to work. So um, he said, like you, he does a lot of re amazing research. He said uh, there was a paper from China saying there are these um, super, I don't know what he called them, but they can have COVID-19 actively for up to 35 days and he said he guesses he's one of them and then in England they're saying they only quarantine people for seven days like Prince Charles so I'm concerned a lot of people will will know they've had it but because we're not testing to see if they still have it two weeks later or four weeks later, um, they'll, these people will feel quite confident that they cannot pass it on to some, someone mm -hmm. else, and they'll approach other people. So can you explain yeah, to that, me Yeah, look, the, there are different quarantine situations. 
when the people who, let's say, were coming back from Florida to, to Montreal were told to self-quarantine for 14 days, within 14 days, you'll find out whether or not you have symptoms. So that's, that's why the 14 days is. If, if you come back and you don't have anything in 14 days, it's very unlikely that uh, you have been infected. No, I, I don't mean that. I mean these people tested positive. Yes, yes, yes. Let me, I'll get around to that. Okay, now, sorry. Okay. Now, once you have someone who is infected and who has tested positive, that is a different situation than the 14 days because you have to wait until you have done at least two tests that have shown that they are no longer infected. But that can take more than 14 days once the infection has occurred. And as, as you mentioned, that study in China did in fact show that there are people who, who can harbor the virus for as, as long as a month. But that is still an unusual situation. Uh, but it is important to understand that, that uh, you can't make universal conclusions. Everything in life pretty well works on a bell curve. You know the shape of a bell curve, right? Exactly. Okay. So there will be some people who will harbor the virus for unusually long time. At the tail end of the curve, there'll be those who harbor it for a very short time, but most people will be somewhere in between. But once you are infected, that's a different story because then you have to make sure that you are quarantining yourself until you have two negative tests. But are they testing everyone? I thought they're only testing uh, the is like healthcare workers who return to hospitals. No, they, you can be tested. In fact, there's a testing center at the uh, uh, Cavendish uh, Mall now. The uh, Cartier Cavendish is now called. You phone up, you get an appointment, and you can be tested. So event oh. eventually, uh, we're going to have a lot more testing, and that is going to be the key to conquering this virus because then we'll be able to quarantine only those people who need to be quarantined. And right. uh, we'll you know, start to get back towards a normal life. Just when that is going to be is anyone's guess. It's not going to be next month, and I'm afraid it's not going to be the month after also. Unfortunately, we're out of time. But I suspect that there will be questions still about this situation next week, and we will handle that. In the meantime, check out our website, www.mcgill.ca slash OSS. We have a new feature there where health experts from around the world are commenting on that or their experience, and we also have a lot of very good information, and you can also sign up for our newsletter. That's it for today. We have run out of time, but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, and boy, do I ever hope that the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>